reminded of your goodness. Goodness in difficult times, goodness in good times. You are a God that is unchanging. You are a good and kind God. It is you who watch over us, who've known us before the foundations of the world. You drew us to yourself. You've showed your kindness when there was no good in us. You were good to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us. This morning, Lord, I would imagine in this congregation, a size this big, Lord, that there is tremendous diversity of trials. Some have broken hearts here this morning. Some are going through trials. They're not sure they can get, it, get through it. You've asked a lot of some, Lord, but you promise that you are with them. And I pray even as we deal with a particular subject of gifts and tongues and prophecy, that even through this message that you would encourage those who are hurt, encourage those who have broken hearts, encourage those who are suffering because of the sin that is in this world, encourage those whose bodies are not what they used to be. And so, Lord, we ask much of you today, that you are a great and mighty God. You are bigger than our struggles, our problems. You hold our life in your hand. You know our days before there was one ordained. And so, Lord, cause us to trust you more and more. We pray this in your blessed Son's name, the only reason we're here. And our God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his name, we ask you to bless and strengthen us. Amen. I invite you to turn to your Bibles in 1 Corinthians 14 as we continue our trek through the book of 1 Corinthians. I continue to be astounded of what I learn. Um, I have been a Christian for a long time and been preaching for a long time, but the more I study God's Word, the more I just enjoy learning. And it has been a wonderful uh, time for me to learn. I trust you are too as well. I love this passage for a lot of reasons. As Pastor Jason read it so quickly and well, <laughs> with a long passage, and you can pray for me, but you know me enough by now. <laughs> Gina laid over and she said, I don't know how it can be more plain than that. When you just hear the word of God read, and that's our goal, as always, we look at the text, we, we look clearly at the text and see it at face value and take plainly that verse by verse, and we can understand, truly understand what God's word is saying, because he's given us his spirit to know it. And look, brothers and sisters, this helps us with our presuppositions, right? You know what a presupposition is? It's something that you think you believe and know and you hold that until something changes it, <laughs> like the Word of God. And sometimes we come to passages like this that we bring our presuppositions. And I believe this text will help you and affirm the truth of God's Word, that it may even push you in your views, or it may affirm your views, but whatever it does, may you be established in worship of God. That's my goal this morning. Now, the context as it's been for several chapters, is public worship. And Paul's been making it clear that everything about public worship is to be about edifying and building up the flock as you praise and lift Jesus Christ in his glory. That's his goal. 
some, particularly in this church in Corinth, and I think in modern-day church, come to church because of individualistic desires. What do you have for me? What are you guys selling? What, what do you have that will make me stay here? How can I have the greatest experience personally? That's a very, very wrong view of why to go to a church. That's not what Paul is about in any way. There's a danger in that individualistic focus. It will cause division. It will cause chaos. That will always be the case, and that's what's happened in Corinth. They all wanted their gifts. They wanted their way. They wanted to take from the church what they thought they needed. And what they ended up was an example of how not to do things. Instead, brothers and sisters, we come together to glorify God, right? That's our common goal, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, whether in a BFG, a Bible study, or a corporate gathering such as this, when we do that, and we do it for edification, we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. We are here to edify one another. And that's why it matters why we sing and what we sing. It matters. And it matters what we preach and how we preach and what we teach. And it matters why we listen. We're not messing around with human wisdom here. We are coming to the Word of God, aren't we? It matters how you greet one another. It matters. Your sons and daughters of the King of Kings. You'll spend eternity with Him. It matters how you greet one another. This is an eternal relationship that we are now engaged with, isn't it? It matters how we fellowship, how you care for one another. It matters how willing you are to die to self. This is the theme that Paul has been after. There is a self-sacrificing nature to our worship. Worship is not about us. It's about the one we lift our praise to. And when we do that, according to the scriptures, we edify and we build one another up. That is the goal. That's why we're here. If you're here for any other reason, I, I hope God changes that reason throughout this message. That you've come to edify and build someone else up. Now, what's key here is this theme of Paul's here. And as he ventures into chapter 14, he wants to highlight these things, this edifying, this building up one another for the glory of Christ. And many things have gone wrong. They've gone array in this church in Corinth. And one of them is public worship. And I, and I, won't, get, I won't get all the way down to the next section. Hopefully, Lord willing, I'll get through this one. And next week, you'll see that they're Public corporate worship was an absolute disaster. Can you imagine this? People pushing and shoving and wanting to be up front so they can give their prophecy, their word from God, their foreign tongue, so that everybody can hear and it's just chaos. Well, let's go to that church. Paul wants to set the record straight. He's trying to guide them back to truth so that they become true worshipers. So let's see what we can learn and apply to our lives here and apply to our church and to one another here at Riverbend this morning. First thought this morning, number one, pursue love and earnestly desire spirituality. Pursue love and earnestly desire spirituality. 
Look at verse 1 with me. The Bible says to pursue, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual. Gifts is put in there. It's not in the original. Spirituality is the idea. Will be, it'll be seen in some of the gifts. So earnestly desire spirituality with its gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, the key to understanding this text is through the pursuit of love. That's how we understand this, right? He's coming off of this great chapter of love. So he starts this next section with a strong uh, uh, exhortation, pursue love. If you want to be spiritual, if you truly want to be spiritual people, because that's what Corinth wanted to be. We want to be these spiritual people. You need to pursue with love. Now, the word for spiritual here is speaking about people who have a desire to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ and edify those around them. That's true spirituality. The world talks about, well, that person's really spiritual. What do you mean by that? If it doesn't have to do with exalting Christ or edifying someone else, it's just a worldly term that they love to sit with their legs crossed and do three fingers out or something like that. That's not spirituality. See, when the goal is not the exhortation and exaltation of Christ and to edify one another, what happens is chaos and division will set in soon. And the Apostle Paul desires that those within the Corinth church would be gripped by the Spirit of God. They would pursue the things that truly matter. That's love, right? Love would dominate that. And the church would be built up. Christ would be glorified. That's his goal. And so it's clear that the Corinthians desired the gift of tongues. If you've read this passage, if you've listened to it as it was read by Pastor Jason, you can see they are desiring this gift of tongues. They want this, and they think they're practicing it. In fact, it was an ecstatic speech of unknown languages. That's what they're after. They were enthralled with what happened in Acts chapter 2. And then the persuasion of the effects in cults that were embedded deeply in Corinth and that lifestyle, it had wormed its way into the church. And now there is not much edification going on, but people are being glorified and exalted because they speak in some language that nobody knows what it means. Now, the desire for this ecstatic speech had become something of a badge of spirituality. And that's why he uses that word spirituality. And, and, and so if you could do this, you could draw attention and it would puff up your pride. So Paul is going to say, look, I'm going to show you exactly that this is not a badge of superiority or even maturity. I'm actually going to show you that you're immature. Look at verse 20. This is at the heart of the passage, at the apex of the passage, we're going to talk about the first half and maybe get to the second half next week. But notice what he says, brethren. So he recognizing them as professing believers. And then what he says, after all this teaching on tongues and prophecy and all of this that we're going to look at this morning, he says, do not be children in your thinking. You go, well, that's kind of mean, Paul. Well, look at the next one. Yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking be mature. There's a lack of maturity here. These, this desire, this overwhelming desire to parade yourself and to put yourself out as though you've received some word of God, but nobody has an idea what it means. Paul is saying is pure immaturity. And it does not edify the church. 
Throughout church history, there has been extreme positions. You'll find yourself on one side or the other of this. On one side, there'll be a group that wants to prove their spirituality because they have received some kind of second blessing, and with that, maybe tongues or something else. And then on the other side, there is a group that just wants to dismiss this gift altogether and not even talk about it. So now you have this kind of polarizing uh, sides when we look down through Christianity, and I think that's even true to this day. But what I've been trying to do through this is help us understand that God used great gifts that may not function the same way now, in fact, may have ceased because of the completion of the Scriptures, but He used these things in a miraculous way, and they should be celebrated in some sense because the gospel was unrestrained in languages to people. If there is one scene I want to see, and there are many of them I want to re-see and see the replay someday in heaven, is Peter preaching at Pentecost. And thousands of people hearing it in their own tongue and saying, what must we do to be saved? What you say? I don't understand you. <laughs> but they understood because God did a miraculous thing. But when this gift is abused, though, when it's desired for spiritual superiority, it gets used in an improper way, and, and now this badge of spirituality is sought after, and what happens over time, and we'll see this next week, particularly there was just division and chaos because it went after the pride. Now, one of the things, if you just read through chapter 14, and as I get into a passage that um, is a bit challenging, and some of these are, I just read them over and over and over. In my own Bible reading, I'll do my Bible reading, and then I'll go read that passage over and over and over and over. And, and if you're teaching or preaching or teaching Sunday school or something like that, you should do that. Just keep reading the passage you're going to teach over and over. Because over time, you just begin to say, oh, wow, here comes the themes. Now, let me see if I can, you can pick out a theme here. Look at verse 3. I'll just pick out some verses here. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, cons consolation. One who speaks, verse 4, in tongues edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Look at the end of verse 5. So that the church may receive edifying, be, be edified. Verse 12. So also you who are zealous for spirituality or spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Verse 17. For you are giving thanks very well enough. But the other person is not edified. What is the overwhelming word you keep hearing? Edify. Edify. This was Paul's goal. So Paul is driving home the point that if the church is not edified, if the church is not built up through the gift of tongues, they need instruction to understand what is, what is edifying, what is understandable, what is intelligible and to use a gift properly. Now, this problem was consistent in Corinth's church. Many issues, right? The Corinth church had lost its way. They had pursued worldly knowledge and wisdom. They had downplayed the gospel. They rejected the Apostle Paul's instructions. They allowed immorality to invade the church without disciplining or doing anything about it. There was division among them that led to lawsuits. Their marriages were needlessly being destroyed. Their freedoms and liberties far outweighed their concern for others. They had integrated pagan rituals with 
uh, which offended weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. They mistreated the poor, which led to a bad understanding of the Lord's table. They failed to function as as a one body with many members type of church, and they desired individualistic glory. I just sat down and wrote my thoughts over 13 chapters of what this church looked like. And let me add the last one. They were unloving. (laughs) I think that's what sums them up the most. And so Paul is trying to bring this church back. In a sense, they lost their sense, their understanding of what first love is. And that's in the gospel, the love of Christ and his truth. And so this led this church to extremely unloving things, right? They, they, they grabbed onto things, as we learned last week, that are not permanent. We learned that love was permanent. Hold on to that. That's everything else is going to cease. Everything else is going to go away. Love will go into eternity with us. And we're to hold on to those things, grasp those things. And so the church was coming apart. Instead of edifying, they were falling into factious behavior and Paul's goal was to expose this air of self-righteous spirituality and help them embrace the things that would bring them together, the things that would bring them into eternity, i.e. chapter 13. In chapter 14, Paul is now focusing on two gifts. You'll notice it, tongues and prophecy. Those are the two that he is focusing on. Now, despite all of the lists that he gave us in chapter 12, um, towards the end of chapter 12, these are the two that he is focusing on. And, and these are the two that are a problem. One is being abused and one is misunderstood. And so Paul is going to compare the gift of tongues against the gift of prophecy. And he's going to prove which is edifying to the church. And we need to listen to this because it will help us in many ways. Now, at this point in church history, and I want you to hear this clearly, I do not believe Paul is rejecting the gift of tongues, languages, but he's merely highlighting which is truly edifying to the church, which is, has become, um, hasn't become something that's self-gratifying. He's highlighting what the church needs. So there is not a complete manual. They're still teaching Christ out of the Old Testament, which was marvelous, right? And we still do that ourselves. Uh, new letters are being written that are inspired, and the Bible is being formed. But at this point... He believes in the gift of tongues, and we're going to see, he says, I, I've spoken the tongues more than all of you, right? So he, he knows the value of what God has done in this first century. But look at, at the end of verse 12, of chapter 12, verse 31. He uses this phrase, I tell you, I'm telling the church to eagerly or earnestly desire the greater gift. And that's love, right? And that's what he goes on to show this more excellent way. So chapter 13, he shows that greater gift because it's eternal. Others will cease and be done away with. Now chapter 14, he uses the same word. I want you to desire earnestly. We kind of switch the English around, but it is the same root word of it. I want you to earnestly desire the greater gift. In other words, pursue true spirituality through love and you'll handle these gifts correctly. So what Paul does here is he takes the two most sought-after gifts and he wants to show what is edifying and what is not. Do you understand that? You get that. All right, now look at verse 1 again with me. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. 
Now, there's two imperatives right off the bat in this, this verse here. Pursue love. It, the verb carries the idea of vigorously running after something. Really getting after it. It, it, it has the idea to hunt or pursue something with great devotion. You're going to run after this thing. And then this second verb, desire earnestly, that he's used in chapter 12, 31, now here again, this second verb depicts a super strong desire, right? A desire with great intensity. It has the idea of being zealous or jealous for something. This is the idea that Paul wants them to pursue what is true spirituality. And when you put these two verbs together, we are instructed to pursue love in a superior way is what Paul is teaching here because that will last eternally, but because the gifts are less important than love. So pursue it, run after it. And they're to do this earnestly as they edify one another. Now the tense of the verbs means this should be habitual. This is an ongoing habitual action that I want you to do. Never stop pursuing this type of love. It is a dogmatic pursuit of love. Now, I keep using words of hunt or something like that. I, I was thinking about an example. Hey, one time we had a, had a great bird dog. We've had several really good bird dogs through the years, and one was named Jessie. She was a yellow lab, and I used to hunt with her all the time. And uh, I remember one particular hunt. Um, in, in a good bird dog, if they're on a scent, they're not going to let it go. I mean, if you've ever been around them. And my dogs are always trained to be on my left side because I'm a right-handed shooter, and so they're always there. So I knocked this bird down, went down in the thickets and the deep weeds, and I, I mean, I looked and looked and looked, and we could not find this bird. I said, Jess, we got to go. Come on. We gotta, we're late. we got to get back. Gina's wondering where we're at. And I start my way to the truck. I could not get her off that scent. And sooner or later, I'm halfway to the truck. I look down on my left. She's walking alongside my left. She's got the bird in her mouth. <laughs> this is the pursuit of love. Stay after it. You know why? Because your flesh wants to lead you somewhere else. You have to pursue it. And if you want to be used of God, if you want to have your gifts accentuated for his glory, if God's gifted you, which he has, because the Bible tells us he's gifted you, he's determined them in chapter 12, verse 11, that he determined what gifts to give you. Stay after this thing doggedly like a dog on a scent that God help me be one who pursues love so that my spirituality will bring you glory and edify those around me. It's a battle, isn't it? Now, this should be desire as we look at these gifts that God has given us, and particularly the gift of prophecy. And, and, and brothers and sisters, I would say this. I would ask the Father to use you and your spiritual gift in a way that shows the love that he gave you, and you can give that love to somebody else and thus edify them. You get that? Lord, help me pursue love in such a way that as I exercise the gifts that you've given me, it will, it'll reflect the love that you've shown me, and I will edify and build up those around me. That's attractive. This is why we're attracted to Christ, right? There's no better, better example. That's why we spent time preaching on the love of Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of chapter 13. Because when we love like Christ, he, it draws people to us because they see Christ in us, not us. Now, that's the goal. Now, notice he says this at the end of verse 1, but especially that you prophesy. 
Pursue love in prophesying. Now, remember, Paul is comparing the effectiveness between tongues and prophecy throughout this whole passage. Which one is most edifying? And it is impossible, when you read this text, brothers and sisters, not to recognize that Paul is saying that prophecy is far and above superior to tongues. Now, as he exposes this self-absorbed preoccupancy with, with ecstatic speech, he's going to do that, right? But first, we've got to examine and define um, what this gift of prophecy is. Remember, there's a redefining of terms, and it's not only happening in the world, what is a woman, uh, but it happens in our churches, too. What is prophecy? Well, we have to understand that term. Well, prophecy, the word itself means to proclaim, to interpret a divine revelation. It means to tell of that truth. And so many have just translated prophecy like our preaching, right? But I want to help you understand that this morning, I do not believe in our modern world where we have completed Bibles that prophecy is just solely preaching. Many commentaries and pastors have entered into the hard battles with the hyper-charismatic church, and they have landed on the fact that, hey, prophecy today is just preaching. And that would be nice, but I think we have a problem in this text if that's what we're going to hold to. And though I believe a great deal of preaching is prophetic, right? As I stand here and Sunday after Sunday tell you of the great promises of God, because that's, I think, prophetic, isn't it? God will send his son. He will rule and reign forever. I can give you all kinds of verses. Is that not prophetic? You see the difference. This is what Paul's after. Now, if prophecy cannot be only fulfilled in preaching, then what is it? Well, look at the text. Paul is telling the entire church that they should pursue prophecy. And if prophecy is just preaching, we got a problem, don't we? Because the scriptures teach us who preaches and who doesn't. He's reserved that ministry for men in the church. Men called, qualified, equipped, shepherds who people will follow. He's, he's given that to them. He has said repeatedly, and we'll see next week, that's not the gift he's given to women. He has given them a whole nother gift to bring him great glory. So if this is just preaching... It lets out of a whole lot of people. And why would Paul say to the entire church that they should be proclaiming prophecy here? Now, again, um, the term gets recharacterized, doesn't it? And so today it's some word from God. It's some movement within you that you have some divine revelation and it can come from anybody at any time in any situation. And it may have something greatly to do with what you ate or how you feel. And so it's dangerous what has been redefined here. And if prophecy is only summed up in preaching, then, then we're, we're, we just have a hole here. So here's what I think. I think Paul's saying that there's this dogmatic pursuit of love, earnestly designed to bring the truth of the word of God out as a source of uh, edification, to those who are around you, that all of us should practice all of the one another's as we understand our Bibles 
And so we learn, and here's where I think this prophetic aspect to everybody happens. All of us are able to say, hey, friend, lost or saved, hey, brother or sister, this is what the Bible says. I know you're suffering. I know you're going through difficult things. Let me remind you in a loving way as I, as I, as I sit and go through this and stand with you in this trial, I believe that God loves you and cares for you and he knows what's going on. And here are three verses to remind you. So I think that's the idea. Here's what Paul's after. And I think it really falls to the one another's, right? I think as we, we think about this verse for our church in the 21st century here, it's loving one another, right? Thinking biblically about one another, ministering to one another, rejoicing with one another, weeping with one another, being devoted to one another, always with scripture on our tongue, giving preference to one another, greeting one another, being kind to one another, not judging one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, restoring one another, forgiving one another, bearing burdens of one another, all through the ministry of the word of God. I think that's what he's after here. So in other words, prophecy is certainly a part of biblical preaching and teaching. But every believer has the opportunity to share God's word with a, with, with a trustworthy understanding that you are saying God knows what's going on. Now, this allows us to be true biblical prophets in our ministry, right? You say, well, Scott, help me understand this a little more. Let me just read you some verses. God promises never to leave you nor forsake you. Is that not prophetic? Is that not speaking of the future? Listen, brother or sister, you who are going through a trial, you who feel lonely and left alone, let me tell you this. God promises never, never to leave you. I need to hear that every once in a while. Do you? You want more? Listen to the prophetic work of the, God's word. God will cause all things to work together. Whoa, all things God, yes, that's what the Bible says, circle it. You know this verse, Romans 8, 28. God will cause all things to work together to those who God loves, right? And to those who are called according to his purpose. But how about my unsaved friend that is upset with the crumbling of society and balloons being shot down over South Carolina and whatever else is going on, right? How about the wages of sin is death? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, are Your unsafe friend may need to hear that. They may need to understand that people die and, and disease and death and murders and rapes and pillagings and all the things we're seeing and lack of, of caring for law enforcement, all the things that are going apart in our, some of our cities in this world is the result of sin and it causes death and that's what happened in the garden. You've got a great opportunity to tell them, but hey, it doesn't end there. <laughs> There's new life in Jesus Christ. See, this is what Paul's after. They want to get up and say, I have some word from God. Nobody knows what it means. Um, I don't even know what it means. Well, that's really edifying. How about you tell them that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners? What a great thing. The Bible says it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. How prophetic is that? Christ is going to return in glory with his, uh, the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. Jesus himself said that 
Uh, you're getting the idea here? And so when we speak to both believers and unbelievers, you're handling the scriptures in a prophetic way, and thus those who hear it are edified and built up, and it can't only come from this pulpit. It must come from all of us. Do you know your Bible? Can you give a verse to somebody to encourage them because you've read your Bible, you've memorized your Bible, you hid it in your heart so you will not sin against God? See, this is the way God uses this. And you think about this when it comes to evangelism. Um, it is amazing when we use God's word how we can become like a prophet, right? And you may be sitting and talking to somebody about the problems of the world and you show them who God is and his control. They may even look at you and say, what, are you some kind of what? They may say, you're some kind of prophet. I go, no, um, it, it, well, kind of, I just know the Bible. I believe the Bible is sufficient that God's given us everything we need. And he speaks of these times that we are in. And you'll be able to show them without a shadow of doubt that you believe the Bible holds the answers to not only eternal life, but life on this world. And you'll be able to explain to them with a prophetic nature, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have eternal life. You'll be able to say that. You'll know Romans 10. You'll, you'll, you'll share that with them. And it's not your job to save them, right? And it's not that it's done cold. It's done in a loving way. But you can trust God that God knows who's are his. He'll draw them uh, to himself despite our lack of prophetic oratorical perfection. That's why we teach God's word. See, this is what Paul's after. See, that's prophetic and that's edifying. And we need to have a growing grasp of the truth of God's word so that we're able to use God's word in such a way that when, they're, when they hear it, they're challenged, they're exhorted, they're encouraged to pursue life with Christ at the center. And this is quite different than what was happening in Corinth. This is quite different than having some word of faith, some word from God that you believe that nobody else understands and you divorce yourself from the sufficiency of scriptures. Instead, brothers and sisters, we cling to the word of God. It helps us speak to our lost friends. It helps us speak to our brothers and sisters. It gives us the ability to encourage, exhort, and comfort. That's what God has given us. Just one last thought on this verse, and then I'm going to speed up. The first one was my longest one. But I know. It's okay to laugh at me. I'm, I'm, I can handle it. Prophecy is truth-telling. That's what Paul's talking about here. If there's anything you write down about prophecy, write down that. Prophecy is about truth-telling. We are not some kind of Christian uh, fortune-tellers of some sort. Palm readers and all that kind of crazy stuff. We are truth-tellers. And so we speak the truth in love to people. That's what people need. That's what we need. That's how we... That's how we bond together as a church in unity and serve the Lord together. Truth binds us together because it's done in love, and that's what we are. And so it is the job. Let me say this again. It is the job of the entire church and every believer to be loving truth-tellers. Are you that? Do you know your Bible? Second thought. The God-given unifying and unifying purpose of edification. The God-given and unifying purpose of edification. Look at verse 2 with me. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but, his, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. 
Well, here Paul is explaining the problem with tongues, that it's unintelligible, right? In other words, the person that speaks in this ecstatic speech, it's only God who understands, and it is possible, and I'd be interested to talk to a few guys about this, and I've read enough where some believe this, this almost sounds a little bit tongue-in-cheek by Paul. Like, God only knows what that meant. Paul does that, and he's done that several times. Now, God does know, right? He knows everything. He knows our thoughts before they're formed, right? He knows all that stuff. But I tend to think there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek here. God only knows what that meant, because none of us know what that meant. This gibberish, this ecstatic speech. Notice the word mysteries here in verse 2. That's interesting. Paul's not speaking about the mysteries of the Old Testament here that, that lead us to understand the fulfillment of those mysteries in Jesus Christ. That's not what this word is, nor- is how that word is normally used, but not here. He's speaking that there are words of this one who's speaking in tongues that are mysteries even to his own self. I don't know if you've ever talked to these people. I'm talking hyper now. I, I, look, I love charismatic true believers. I'll talk about that in a minute. But there's a hyper end of this, and when you get around them and they'll do some kind of gibberish or something, you go, what does that mean? He goes, I don't know. I have no idea. God just gave it to me. I have no responsibility for it. That's all we need. (laughs) It's something that nobody knows what it's talking about. It's a mystery to everybody. It's not edifying. That's a huge problem, right? There's no edification. There's no building up of anybody. And hopefully, the, the, the idea is that, well, maybe God knows. Well, God doesn't need your, your tongues, right? He's, he's not a God who's in need of something. So if only he knows, why would he need that? So I think this is why Paul's planning some words here. Look at verse 3 with me. It gets even better. But the one who prophesies speaks, of, speaks to men for edification, exhortation, consolation. I've already been using these three terms. They really struck me in my study. Notice there's this great contrast now, right? Paul's proclaiming the benefits of prophecy. The ability to be intelligible. See, the result is that the hearer is strengthened. Notice the word edified. He's confronted. He's exhorted, right? He's comforted or consoled is the word there in verse 3 by this prophetic truth of God's word. I know you're going through something hard. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't. But God does because he says he knows you. He knows every fiber about you. He knew you before you were born. In fact, he chose you before you are born. He cares about you. See, isn't that comforting? Isn't that exhorting when I'm down and I go, well, nobody cares, nobody understands what's going on? No, 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 God cares. And he loves you. And he sent his son to die for you and take your judgment in your place. I mean, isn't that incredible? That's what he's after here. And that's what's not happening in this church. So the person who's proclaiming the word of God from the pulpit to the pew, right? All of us is using his or her gift through faith to build up the hearer, to encourage the listener, and to comfort the one in need. Now, what a contrast to the one who's been speaking in some kind of static speech that nobody but God can understand, which results in no uh, unification, no exhortation, absolutely no comfort because God's word's not involved in it. Now look at verse 4, he drives a point home. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. In other words, the one who speaks in tongues is the only one who benefits, apparently. But the one who prophesies allows everyone to benefit, right? I hope you're all benefiting from the preaching of God's word today. 
I hope every one of you, that you come away and you go, man, I, I, I think I need to read my Bible more. I think I need to get in a discipleship group. I, I, I think I need to memorize some scripture so I stop sinning against God. I hope you come away and you're edified by what is going on. If I come up here and speak in Arabic, there's three people in here that don't understand me. This is plain language, isn't it? That God is doing here. It's just simple. Tongues are self-edification, verse 4. Prophecy edifies the church. And this is the overwhelming theme throughout these chapters. Knowledge puffs up. This is the desire, but love builds up. You don't have to have a seminary degree, brothers and sisters, to understand the difference in the gifting and how love changes all of this. And this dogmatic pursuit for love drives this desire in your heart that people are edified and not torn down. Right? And, and, and that's how we take check of where we give our counsel to our own children or to somebody else, whatever it may be, as you're ministering among the flock and edifying and serving one another and giving preference to one another. Are you building them up in love? Look, love has to deal with hard things sometimes. Love has to say, brother, sister, this is wrong. I'm coming to you so you can confess this. But that's love, right? Now, Paul doesn't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. Look at verse 5 when it comes to speaking in tongues. Now, I wish that all of you spoke in tongues. But even more that, notice the language, but even more that you would prophesy. The greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Now, it's important here because I think he's given a summary. Paul wishes that everyone could experience speaking in intelligible languages so that the gospel can go forth unhindered to someone who doesn't understand that particular language. I'm just defining the word glossa, right? Because we're not talking about some kind of language that nobody knows. These word languages, the word is always language. Again, we miss, we, we redefined a word. Christianity, if you want to call it that somewhere along the line, redefined what tongues is. But even with that, he says, the greater gift is prophecy. And unless the one speaking in tongues can be interpreted, it's the lesser gift, he's saying here, because only God knows what's going on there. So the whole message here is choose to exercise the gift that edifies the person next to you. <laughs> just think about that. A room this size with this many people that are here and overflow watching online, just think if we, everything we did, we thought biblically and we sought to edify the person next to you, and many of that is our spouse, children, or dear friend, how that would affect the body of Christ. That's what Paul wants. That's what God wants. That's what he wants to see done. Now, I think some in our camp would just wish that Paul would just say, tongues are done, get away with it, right? Because they don't want to deal with this. But notice he says in verse 5, now I wish that all of you spoke in tongues. Oh, Paul, do you have to say that? Well, chapter 7, verse 7, he says, yet I wish that all men were even as I. He's in marriage and singleness, right? However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. Does God want the whole church single or celibate? Well, the church dies after a while, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't think that's what Paul wants or does God want, right? Paul is, is, is not against the practice of speaking in tongues that 
that, that can be interpreted, right? That it's done so someone who cannot understand in that language hears it. But he is against how they were practicing. So there's a difference between the gift and how it was practiced. If it's unedifying, it's wrong. If it doesn't build up, it's wrong. So just like Paul wants everyone to be single because they can serve the Lord without human um, uh, problems, right? As soon as we get married, we got bills and houses and people and all, you know, we can't, you know we're just not near as free. You single people, man, you can do some amazing things that us married people can't in some cases. But that's not the case because God gives the gift of marriage to some in the same way Paul is speaking about the rarity of the true gift of tongues. And I use that word carefully. It's rare because it's something that's uh, miraculous, particularly in the first century here, versus the tremendous opportunity to speak prophetically. Just read the Bible to somebody. <laughs> uh, and give them God's word and speak with biblical language and truth and let that per- be persuasive or pervasive in your speech. That's what Paul is after. Now, I, I think a good example, I thought about this this week. If if I need it to speak to a bunch of Arabic people, there's about three, maybe four, George and Setha and Samir, and maybe a few others, who could actually help me get that done. They, they, they could help me do that. And I am so grateful for that. But every believer, think about this. Every believer has the opportunity to share God's word in an edifying, exhorting, comforting way with one another to somebody of your same language. Every one of us can do that. There's just a handful that could go overseas and do uh, preaching with me and take my, my sermons and translate them into a, a language where they, the person hearing could hear that. But all of us right here can do that, and that's what Paul's after. So let me say this again. Paul's objection throughout the whole chapter is not the practice of tongues, but the place that tongues was given, trying to gain some place of superiority. So this is a strong rebuke, but again, it's done by Paul's pursuit for love. Paul knows the benefit of the gift of tongues. Look, he watched it. He saw this place in Corinth, just a collision of languages and world cultures come there. And and it seems... Because Paul says, nobody's smoking tongues more than me. It seems Paul exercised this gift in such way that people heard the gospel. And God did amazing things through him. But God, but Paul knows God uses a diversity of gifts and brings about his divine purposes through this. That's what he says back in chapter 12, verse 28 and following. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets. Third teachers, then miracles, then the gift of healing, helps, ministration, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? Rhetorical. All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gift of healing, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and then he launches into love. And so here is the idea, is that we take the gifts that we understand. And look, and I think this is a gift every believer can do. Know your Bible Share truth from the Bible with somebody else. This is Paul's message. And so Paul sees this as the goal, not some unintelligible tongue speaking. That's not what he's after. But is to those who lovingly foretell the truth of God's word. Third thought. How am I doing? Bad. Here we go. The harmony of unification and edification. There's a harmony. Number three. There's a harmony to unifying people 
and edifying people. And so Paul's now proven what the lack of edification is. It's this unintelligible speech. And he's now going to drive his point home. And he first starts with another rhetorical question. Look what he says in verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? In other words, Paul is saying, if I show up and I speak to you in some intelligible tongue, something that you don't understand, what profit is it? What good is it for you? And I, and I think he's continuing to say, it will profit you if I bring intelligible, if I bring understandable truth from God's word, the revelation, right? Because the buck wasn't completed yet. He's receiving revelation from God. If I bring you truth, prophetic truth, through, through prophetic knowledge, truth of, about God's word, they had the Old Testament, prophetic encouragement, if I bring you that and teach you instructively for the sake of edification, that's what you need. And edification comes through intelligible instruction that tongues often cannot provide because it doesn't have the interpretation. So, well, how does he drive this point home? He gives you two illustrations. Look at verse 7. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinct sound in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? Now, here's this illustration, I think, of an orchestra, right? And in the orchestra, there's distinct sounds, right? We had some of them on the stage today. We had violins and horns and guitars and so forth. But if that instrument, think about this, and this is his illustration, if that instrument does not correctly sound the way it was intended, right? Produce a sound the way it was intended. It fails to produce the harmony with the rest of the orchestra. So if Scott goes over here in the closing song in a few minutes, pushes Andrew out of the way, grabs that guitar and starts pushing on those things, I have no idea what they are. That's not going to be good. Scott has to stay here and Andrew needs to be there, right? Do you get the idea? And so when people are not handling God's word correctly or desiring superiority through some kind of gifts, the orchestra is off. Bad notes are being played and we're all going, oh. See, Paul is using that. And so using gifts God has given in an intelligible and edifying way, it creates a harmony in our worship. Want to be disharmonized? Mm. Step out of the will of God. Mishandle your gift. Don't exalt through God's word. Now he gives a second illustration that I really like this one. Look at verse 8 with me. For if the bugler produces an uh, instinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? In other words, if you're going to lead somebody out to war, but instead of playing the song that says, charge, you play the song that says, go to sleep, is there, is there a difference, some of you army people? Now I see they have the bugle thing, but they don't play it. They just push a button because nobody knows how to play the bugle anymore. <laughs> Boy, we're really losing it, aren't we? If you play the wrong message and there's war coming and the troops don't know, hey, that means go fight versus go to sleep, somebody's getting wiped out. See, he's using really plain language to help us understand how these misuse of gifts that are unintelligible 
unedifying, all they do is cause division and chaos. Somebody heard, well, I, I think we're supposed to go. No, I think we're supposed to go to sleep. No, we're supposed to go. No, I think we're supposed to be here. I think it means dinner. And you got people going every which way. Do you see Corinth now? You see the problem with a hyper-charismatic church, why there's so much division and problems and things that go on there? Everybody's running in their own way, and so the Corinth church was using their own gifts for their own good. They were playing their own tune. They were seeking to exalt uh, what they perceived was superior spirituality, and they lost the harmony of unification and edification. Look at verse 9. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. <laughs> Paul's just being honest here, isn't he? Plain and straightforward. If you get this wrong, Corinthians or Riverbend, you'll and you don't speak with clarity, your words are going to be like speaking into the air. They'll be empty, useless is the idea of the word. They'll fade away. It's unprofitable. It's like I spoke to an empty room and no one was there. I did that in COVID. <laughs> but you were there. You were watching. Think about that. It's just empty. I, I, it's just as plain as can be. When you speak, when things come out of your mouth, are they edifying? Are they building up? Look at verse 10 and 11. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. Why is this one without meaning, right? It's pretty obvious. Why are you getting hooked up with a language that doesn't have any meaning to it? Verse 11, if then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian. The one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Now, if I can't understand what the speaker is saying, then he's a foreigner to me, right? And I'm a foreigner to him. I'll never forget, just not too long ago, we were in the streets of northern Africa, and it was really quiet for a while. I didn't quite understand what was going on, but the afternoon prayers were going on. And we were happening to make our way down into a marketplace, a very busy marketplace. And all of a sudden, the prayers let out. And they were all there. They weren't at the mosque praying. <laughs> they were all there because uh, 10 million mosques, 10 people in them, uh, Samir always tells me. Um, so they're not there. Then all of a sudden, once the horn goes off or whatever they do and the prayer's over, man, they start up. And there's this marketplace going. And here's a couple of gringos walking through there. Um, and the languages, and they're arguing and yelling, and all these things are going on. And I'm thinking, I have no clue what they're saying. It's such a foreign language, I, I just had no idea. But then I decided to say something. And guess what they did? I remember this one particular man goes. <laughs> and somewhere in Arabic, he said, what you talking about? <laughs> we're just foreign to each other. This, this, just a few months ago, we were in Egypt, and the first, the first night of the conference, places packed, people hanging in the windows. I mean, it was just packed. And there's a lot going on. Pastors are sharing stuff. And Samir even shared um, lots of going. It's all in Arabic and all going along. And then I finally get up and I stand in the pulpit. My, my interpreter's right here. And I say the very first phrase. And over to my left were a bunch of school-age boys. And as soon as they heard me speak, they started laughing. It was kind of distracting. <laughs> you know why they were laughing? They never had heard English before. It sounded hilarious to them. And their dads are back there. One guy had a cane and he bopped one of them on the head. <laughs> I don't know what he's saying either, but you shouldn't be laughing. 
We were foreigners to each other until my dear pastor friend began to translate what I was saying. And then we became brothers and sisters. And the sweet message of God's word went forth. And what a beautiful illustration that is. This is what God says. Look at verse 11. He says, if we don't do this, we're like barbarians, right? This is an amazing term. This is nomadic, warring, mercenary type people who are mocked for their inintelligible language. The word they're called barbarian is because to, to them, they sound like their language was bar, 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 made, no mis- no, made nothing. And so they called them barbarians. That's where it came from. So Paul said, if you, if you sound like this and, you're, and nobody knows what you're saying, but only God himself, you are sounding like a barbarian. No one can understand you. We should choose to be truth tellers so we edify one another. That's the goal. That's the goal. Three out of four. I gave it my best shot. I really wanted to get to 19. Um, but this is very important, and I'll come back to it next week. There's this teaching of prayer language that went around, and Paul, 2,000 years before that even came around, is going to undo it in this passage. And it is so crystal clear how we are to speak and how even our prayer life is edifying to us, to God, to those around us. And so we'll come back and we'll, we'll start with this last point, the power and effectiveness of intelligible prayer, and then we'll work our way into the rest of this chapter, okay? Thank you for bearing with me. Isn't this good? Isn't this good to just verse by verse, plain teaching through it? Yes? All right. Thank you, Lord. We give you all the praise and glory for this. Um, we're, so, we're so easily strayed. Lord, left to ourselves without your word, Lord, as proven in the church of Corinth, we could just really get into ourselves. And Lord, unfortunately, we have your Bible and we really get into ourselves still. So, Lord, I pray that you are admonishing us to where we are not truth-tellers. We, we don't qualify what we say with the Bible, Lord. We're, we're not men and women, boys and girls, where the truth of God's word is on our tongues so that we speak clearly and articulate truth and bring comfort and exhortation and edification to the hearer, Lord. Cause this church, each and one, every one of us, from the pew to the pulpit, to be those who tell the truth from God's word. Lord, that has how you save people too. You use the message that we carry. You let us save sinners. Carry your truth. And you save people. And then, Lord, you help us bring comfort to somebody who is hurting, whose heart is broken, who's suffering through a difficult trial or a testing that you have allowed into their lives. Lord, we come along with the soothing message of God's word. And we walk with them. And we pursue love and they feel that love and sense that and they long to know that truth as well. And so, Lord, we have a huge responsibility here on this earth. We've been saved and we've been given the ultimate source of truth, the Word of God. So, Lord, help us handle this correctly. We praise you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.